morning that maybe it's a story you've heard many, many times. Maybe it's the first time uh, you've read or heard 1 Samuel chapter 20. But I want you to be in the story, okay? To understand the fear that these characters are going through. Understanding who they should truly trust. And this is what they are trying to figure out in this story, David and Jonathan. How do I deal with the fear? Maybe you're watching me. I go up the stairs. Should I go up the steps? What motivates me to do it? Should I open that door? You know, how will I have the courage to go about doing it? I want you to be in that position of these two young men figuring that out. Well, also, I want you to know that this is a real story. It's not just a movie. This is a story in history about reality. And we are going to see in this story how these men deal with the reality of the world and what it tells them about the creator of the universe. How they're supposed to deal with fear and then how are they supposed to look at their loyalties? Who do they place their loyalties on? Let's find out together, shall we? First Samuel chapter 20. Please be attentive as we read God's word. First Samuel chapter 20. I know some a little Sometimes reading along with me as I go helps you to do it. Um, not reading aloud, aloud, but just following along as I read. Sometimes maybe just closing your eyes and listening to the story works too. So if you want to do that, know that you can, okay? No embarrassment if you just want to hear the story as I read it. Okay? Let's listen to God's word. Then David fled from Naomi and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without discussing it uh, with me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David bowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. And David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon. I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go, that I may hide myself in the field to the third day of evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem fast leave of me to run to Bethlehem the city for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan if he says good it will be well with your servant but if he is angry then know that harm is determined by him therefore deal kindly with your servant for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you but if there is guilt in me kill me yourself for why should you bring me to your father and Jonathan said Far be it from you. If I knew that there is, um, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall not then send and disclose it to you. 
But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, but not to disclose it to you, and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. And the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, teach us, how do we learn something from a story like this, of, of fear and, and danger and mystery? What can we gather from this together in our own lives and help us to learn and to be able to be transformed so that we might live it out in our lives? In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we're going through the book of 1 Samuel. It's really a book about uh, politics. <laughs> about the lives of kings, the first kings of Israel. And uh, it's not just history and politics, though. It's also character development. We don't just look at it from a high level. We actually get to be in the royal house and see interactions between characters. And we get to see how does Saul become this utterly corrupt person? And how does David develop this virtue? And then how do they get to the place, as we see at the end of 1 Samuel, where they're at war with each other? How does it come to a place where David, who's the one that's a shepherd, and the one that played the liar for Saul, one that became Saul's son-in-law, and one that ate and feasted with Saul at his own table, how did it come to the point where David and Saul are at war and David is running his, from, for his life from Saul. And how does Saul, a man that was very timid, that we saw hid in the luggage, that uh, was felt like he was from a tribe that was very weak, um, that was a person that was very humble, how does he get to the place where he looks like a corrupt mob boss? That he does very, very wicked things. How does he get to that place? And 1 Samuel allows us to look at that and to find that out. In chapter 20, one of the longer chapters in the book of 1 Samuel, is the breaking point of this relationship between David and Saul. It's the breaking point. From this point on, David will be on the run throughout the book of 1 Samuel. He will be running continuously from Saul, who is after his life. And so, this is the place where we see the break point. But I love it, first chapter, uh, chapter 20, is because it looks at this break point through the eyes of Jonathan. And Jonathan is still figuring something out. Who is right and who is wrong? Where should my loyalties be? And it's a tough one. Should I side with my dad? You know, the king? Or should I side with my best friend, my BFF, my, my brother-in-law? 
should I side with him? And Jonathan faces real fear. And he will select his loyalties in this chapter. And that's a question again that I want to find us. How do we face fear? And how do we select our loyalties? Well, again, let's look at chapter 20 in the beginning here. And it seems like Jonathan and David are conflicted about what the situation is. You've got to wonder, why is Jonathan conflicted about Saul? <laughs> so what we've seen. Saul has thrown a spear at David three times. He has at three times asked other servants to go kill David. Why would Jonathan question whether Saul wanted harm for David or not? Well, the reason is because Jonathan isn't aware of all that's been going on. In fact, the last time um, Jonathan saw interaction between David and Saul, Saul made a vow before the Lord to his son, because his son confronted his dad and said, Dad, David has done great things for you. You should not harm him. And Saul is convicted and he says, I make a vow to the Lord that I will not harm David. So that's the last image that Jonathan has about the relationship between Saul and David. But he is out of the loop, as David tells him. David says, you know, the reason you don't see this is because your dad knows that you're siding with me. He's not going to tell you that he's going to come and try to kill me. You don't see what I see. see and, and then David says, I, I know I know you want me to be at this feast with you. I know that I am responsible as a family member to be at the new moon feast, to sit at the table with the king, that I am his servant, I am his son-in-law, that um, I am supposed to be there. Even though I know I'm supposed to be there, I fear for my life. And I want you to see, Jonathan, it's not wise that I am there at the new moon feast. You know, many commentators and church historians through the years have really debated this issue. Should David have fear? You know, if he's the anointed one by God, Samuel anointed David to be king, should he not just trust God and go into any situation? Because God will protect him? He shouldn't run. He shouldn't create this elaborate plan. He should just go. Because God will protect him. I think there's a prevailing thought, um, especially in American culture, I feel like, that fear is not, uh, fear is a bad thing in and of itself. Fear is bad. Okay? That the way that we can progress as a culture and as humanity is that we cast all fears aside. Once you get rid of fear, then you'll have no problems. I do not think the Bible describes fear in that way. I'm going to borrow a lot from Kevin DeYoung this morning, a fellow PCA pastor in Michigan. Uh, he's written an article just this last week about this issue. And he, he borrows from Thomas Aquinas, and I really appreciate it. Aquinas said, fear is not a virtue or a vice. And the Bible shows both positive things of fear and negative things of fear. Fear is 
a good thing in the sense that um, it keeps us from wanting to smoke, right? Oh, I'll get lung cancer if I smoke. I, I don't want to die and get lung cancer. So fear is good in that sense. Fear also makes us not want to run across the street when there's traffic. I could get hit by a car. That's a good thing. But at the same time, fear can be harmful that it can paralyze us. We can rush into judgment. We can cut corners rather than being obedient to what we're supposed to be doing. Or we can make judgments on people without all the facts. So fear is not a virtue or it's not a vice. It can be used both good and bad. But I do think that fear can do one thing. It can do multiple things, but one thing here I think that we'll see is that Fear allows us to take inventory, to deliberate, to investigate, to seek counsel. And this is what David and Jonathan are doing. They're at an impasse. Jonathan says, there's nothing for you to fear, David. My father is not after you. And David is saying, oh, yes, there is something to fear. They're at an impasse. But Jonathan says, goes past, okay. I want to legitimize the fear that you have and, and the worry or anxiety that I have. What is your plan? And we see that David lays out a plan to investigate, to find out if this fear is real, if this concern is real. I think some of us can be blind like Jonathan in understanding people's fears. Uh, there's nothing to be scared about. What are you fearful about? There's no problem. I think a lot of times we can minimize people's fears and the reason they're scared is because we have not experienced what they have. That's one reason. And the second reason, a more theological reason, is because I think many of us can minimize the depravity and the fallenness of the human condition. I think some of us don't realize that people can be really wicked. And they can be incredibly dangerous. That Saul is an incredibly wicked and dangerous person. And many times in our culture say, oh, there's good in everyone. Everyone's okay. No, there, there are people that seek our harm. And they seek people that we know is harm that we just don't see. I want to apply this in a few ways, personally and then from a church and then from a societal way. One from a personal way, um, I think many times we minimize our kids' fears, our children's fears. And I can say to my children, um, don't be scared, there's nothing to be scared about. Rather than actually doing some investigation and actually listening to them on what they're fearful about. And I think as parents, we need to do, sometimes, maybe I'm speaking to speak myself, we need to do a better job of listening to where our kids are at. As a church, and I want to speak to these future elders and leaders in the church. Many times in the church, we can be blind to the actions of people towards others in the church. That we say, why are you scared of this person? Why are you fearful of this relationship that we don't realize because that other person maybe puts off a good face towards us? 
But there might be real danger in someone's home. There might be something really to be, for this person to be fearful about. And we need to do a good job of listening to people in our church after they've confronted that person individually to say, listen, this person is not changing. And then when they come to us as leadership or whoever we might be, that we would listen to them and understand there are maybe real fears. Whether it's at work, whether it's in their home, whether it's with family members. And lastly is this, and I, I know I might be stepping right into it, but I've got to today, so. Um, again, I love Facebook because it lets me know the pulse of where people are at, especially in the Christian community. Um, I haven't seen so much uh, vitriol against Christians back and forth that I have this week. I've seen quite a bit, not just on Facebook, but in conversations I've had with others, specifically about this debate of whether we allow Syrians into our country or not. And I really think that we, and that we should, passionate Christians fighting each other on this, on this issue. I think we can learn a lot from David and Jonathan here, especially Jonathan. But Jonathan admits, okay, we're in a game pass, but I can realize I could be wrong about this. I could be wrong, David, that maybe there is a true concern and fear that you have. And I want to investigate it and find it out. So I want to speak to people right now. I don't want to speak to both. I'm an equal opportunity offender. Um, I think the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. We'll speak to people to the left a little bit. I'm not saying that everyone on the left is agreeing with this, but um, that there might be adequate concern of Christians. These are our brothers and sisters that say maybe we should be wary about welcoming Iraqis and Syrians into the country. There might be adequate concern. You don't pounce on me yet. I'm not saying that myself. I'm just saying when we listen to each other and hear each other and investigate the situation. Okay. Okay. Maybe I've offended some. That's great. Okay. I'll offend the other people in a little bit. Okay. But again, I wanted you to see that fear is not in itself bad. Okay. David is taking, and Jonathan are taking inventory. Is Saul dangerous? Should he be feared? And then the passage moves on and. I find it interesting, you know, it's a little bit of suspense. Uh, Jonathan says, take a walk with me, you know, David, into the field. And you wonder, is Jonathan going to kill David right now into the field, you know? Is, is Jonathan really going to side with Saul right now and do this? No, instead we see a very interesting conversation. A reiteration about their covenant love, their promise to each other, that they will be there for each other, that they will... Um, even if they are guilty, they will die for each other, whatever might be. There's a strong bond between these two individuals. And we also find something very interesting in Jonathan's talking to David in his field. That Jonathan, uh, David is not the only one that is fearful in this story. There is another one that is fearful, and that's Jonathan. Jonathan, too, is scared. What does Jonathan have to be scared about? Well, we see that Jonathan is scared because he's starting to realize that David might become the king. He might be the anointed one. And what would happen if David becomes 
the anointed one. What happens with the warring other kingdom, usually? You kill them all off. That's what you do. I mean, just look at English history, you know? If there is a warring party, you kill them all off. And Jonathan is warring about this. And he says, David, if you become king, I know what Saul has done. I know that um, if Saul is evil here in this situation, that it will come down on me too. But remember your promise to me. Remember your steadfast love to me. Oh, I, I said how rich this is. The word is hesed, which used over and over again in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in Exodus, and talking to Moses. And it is a picture of who God is. God is what? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, has said. And here Jonathan is saying, will you, even if I am at enmity with you, my family is at enmity with you, that you will not cast us aside, that you will save my family, that you will love me, that you will be slow to anger, abounding in love, that you will be You see, in the midst of Jonathan's own fear, he clings to the promise of God, and he cling, clings to the promise of the covenant love between him and David. Here, man, as we take inventory of our own fears, and we set up boundaries and ways that we make sure that we're out of danger and we're safe and all those things, even as much as we set that up, and then we still are worried, are still anxious. What do we cling to then? You see that Jonathan clings to the covenant promise of God. He clings to his steadfast love. And that is the thing, same thing that we should cling to in fear and anxiety. God, that you, do you really care for us? Do you love us? Are you for us? This is the message of Israel from the beginning. God, do you really care for us? Will you save us from Egypt and bring us to the land? And then when they come outside the land, will you conquer the people that are in the land? Do you really love us? And he brings them in there. And then in the land, there's other enemies that come against them, the Philistines, everything like that. God, do you truly care for us and love us? And then it comes down to even to the personal relationships with David and Jonathan. And Jonathan saying, God, do you love us? And he is saying that through David. And the thing is, it's not, it's not just true for Israel, but I hope it's true for us as we fear or take evaluation of things out there. God, do you care for us? Again, back to the personal. I talk with my daughters when they're going to bed. I take an inventory of their fears. Caroline, Dad, I have really bad dreams. Okay? Let's set up the nightlight. Okay? Let's have some water. Let me rub your back and sing you a song. And still, she is scared of going to sleep. What can I give her then? What do I say to her then? I say, believe, I, I use the word covenant, right, with my daughter, no. But you believe in the love that God has for you, Caroline. And he will protect you, 
that he is for you, that he loves you. Do you cling to that? Even in the midst of fear, do you trust in that? Cling to the promise when we counsel people in our church that have set up now boundaries of maybe abusive relationships with maybe someone in their family, or maybe an emotional abuse with a boss or a friend or whoever it might be, and we set up safe boundaries now, and then we talk about have you been able to forgive them? What would it look to reconcile? And they say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go more than a relationship. I, I just can't do that. I fear. What do we say to them? Do you remember that God cares for you and loves you? His covenant love for you and he'll protect you in all places and all times. That he is for you. Will you cling to that? Okay, we set up all the security measures we can. We vet Syrians and Iraqis as they come into the nation. Right? But I don't know, God. You say to love the sojourner. You say that I should love the immigrant. You say I should love the refugee. But you know what can happen? They can sneak through. I mean, ISIS could be here. We could have terrorism and danger and all these things could happen. What do you cling to there? Do you believe God's promise? He will not cut you off. He loves you. He is there for you. I love Tozer on this. A scared world needs a fearless church. Church, do we believe the promises of God? And if we believe the promises of God, we should welcome the stranger into our home. We should welcome those from other nations into our lives without fear or danger, because we know we serve a God that protects us in all things. You don't believe me? Hear the words of Jesus. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, or cannot kill the soul. I hope I can convict the people on the right here and the left. There is measured judgment in how we seek this situation. But I hope we would not fear knowing that God is the one that protects us and he gives us his promises. But still, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, maybe some of you do, but we're pretending we don't know what's going to happen. Okay? And Jonathan um, is uh, going to walk into this uh, d dangerous situation and figure out who is right. Is David right or am I right in evaluating Saul? And they set up um, this espionage, the arrow thing that I just talked about. This is what's going to happen to communicate a message to you. We have to do it this way because um, it's such a, it could be such a dangerous situation that if we saw each other, or both of our lives could be in serious danger. And that's why they set this up of shooting the arrows and having the boy um, communicating to David without words about what is going to happen. And so what is going to happen? 
Well, let's find out, shall we? Let's read verse 25 in chapter 20. The king, Saul, sat on his seat as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the deal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul and his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So, You've got to imagine the situation for Jonathan here. He's been asked by David to probe where Saul's loyalty, where Saul's heart lies, if he is really wanting to kill David or not. Now, he probably did not imagine that the anger would then turn on him. <laughs> you see that Saul doesn't just go after David in his rebuke. He goes after Jonathan. And the language he uses at Jonathan is crass and cruel. I, I think the, many of the ESV and the NIV versions um, try to um, shield young people's ears or our own ears in the Hebrew language that's used about nakedness here. He's saying, shame be on you, like your mother's nakedness in a very graphic way he describes it. He verbally assaults his son. And I find it very ironic that uh, Saul um, talks about the shame of um, his wife's nakedness when the chapter just before this, um, Saul was uh, recently possessed by the Spirit of God and ripped off all his clothes and lived in nakedness for a day himself. That he's saying, shame be on your mother's nakedness, when really the shame is upon Saul. And the shame is upon his reaction in this situation. And Saul reasons with Jonathan. Please hear me. Saul reasons with Jonathan. Jonathan, don't you get it, bro? I've been saying bro a while lately. I've been hanging around 
Josh for waxing too long. So, don't you get? If David is the king, then our kingdom is out. If he lives, then our kingdom is done here. How can you side with him? You should be siding with me. Because it is for your benefit. And he says very harshly, he says the son of Jesse, not even acknowledging that David is his own son-in-law, is in the Hebrew it says, is the son of death. And then Jonathan replies in the same way that David asked Jonathan, what have I done? What has David done? And when this question is asked, we see the true heart of Saul. What does he do? He takes a spear and throws it as his own son. Again, please hear me here. In looking at his father and his actions towards him, Jonathan is fighting, starting to realize where his loyalty should really lie. My dad says if my loyalties are towards him, my kingdom will be established. But the truth is, if my loyalties are towards him, my kingdom will be open and destroyed. In fact, hope is not found in this king. Hope is not found in my father. Instead, it is found in my friend. This is where my loyalty should be. Because if I bring my loyalties with him, then my kingdom and my ancestry will live on. You know, there's great suspense in Return of the Jedi, I think. And I find the suspense, um, it's kind of the buildup of the Emperor. You know? You see this Emperor guy that's in this black cloak that's kind of feeble and old and shrivelly, and you're like, Really? This guy rules the galaxy? No. This guy? And you you see the face-off, right, of, of Luke at the end of Return of the Jedi when he's um, in front of the Emperor and his father, Darth Vader, and um, you see the interaction between Luke and the Emperor, right? And you're like, really? This guy's a danger? The Emperor? This guy's a problem? I mean, he's just saying, side with me, you know, Luke, and it'll be okay, you know? You'll be fine. But then, again, you've got to pretend like you see Return of the Jedi for the first time again, right? But then what happens when David, when, sorry, David, when Luke says, I will not side with you, then just all craziness breaks out. You see in the face of this emperor these bolts coming out of his hand, you know? Like, this dude is freaky. This dude is scary. This guy is dead. And, you know, all this time, like, this guy, he's not that big of a deal. But then in that picture of Return of the Jedi, you see, if your loyalties lie with him, it is nothing but death. Saul is a picture of fallen humanity. Saul is a picture of the first human, our father, Adam. 
David is a picture of Christ. He is a picture of redeemed humanity. And what does Romans say? Sin entered through one man and condemned all of us. In the same way, righteousness came in the world through one man, Christ, so that we might have life. What man will you side with? Where is your loyalty? Humanity says, side with me. It's okay. It's fine. So I'll say, don't you know the kind of benefits you will get from coming with me? But then we get a picture of really what it is to side with humanity. <clears throat> Where are your loyalties? Is it towards your job? Oh, it's benign. Come on, it's not that big of a deal. It's towards uh, my sports team. It's towards my kids. It's towards this or that. That's where my loyalties lie. Don't you know that all of those loyalties will lead you to nothing but false hope? And when you stare them in the face, at their very end, they will lead you to nothing but destruction. Oh, they're so benign. They're not that big of a deal. Finally, we see Jonathan gets a clear picture of who evil is. And just as Jonathan was ridiculed by putting his faith in David, so we as the church are ridiculed by putting our faith in someone that had no place to lie his own head, one that died upon the cross, one that said, I have redeemed humanity, and I am the one that you should put your loyalty towards, because I am the only one that brings life and hope and forgiveness. Where are your loyalties? Let me land the plane here. I'm going to read this last section and we'll be done. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And John, Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. For the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground, and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Oh, what a picture. What a picture of friendship, but more than that, what a picture of God's covenant love for us. Of two warring homes, 
two enemies coming together. And you know, I find it interesting in this passage, you know, if David um, knew that there was danger, why didn't he just run and said he came out to meet Jonathan? You see, David risked. David came. David ran to Jonathan and said, our families should be reconciled. What a contrast. A contrast between spears on one end and kisses and tears on the other. Where should your loyalty be? Towards a God that runs towards us and hugs us and weeps for us and loves us? One that has given his very safety of heaven to come down to earth to be with us. I love the picture of Jesus with his friend, Lazarus. And what happens when Lazarus dies? Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps for us. He weeps for his people. He loves us so great. He says, do not go the path of death, but come to me, the path of life. That is where your loyalty should be. My prayer is that we decide. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for David. Thank you for Jonathan. Thank you for showing us your covenant faithfulness, not just in their friendship, but in your friendship with us and Jesus coming for us. God, thank you for making a covenant with us. Even when we were enemies, even when we were the warring party, you did not forget your love for us. We just pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.